The contents of this podcast episode may be triggering and emotionally challenging to some audiences due to a discussion around suicide, self-harm, depression, and or a reference to other mental health disorders. Continue at your own discretion. Today, I'm talking with Matsuko Estrada Nakamatsu, an 18-year-old gun high school graduate from Palo Alto. Matsuko enjoys watching anime, eating ramen, and painting. Today, she'll be sharing a bit about her experience with ADHD, growing up around the machismo culture, and how to be resilient. So welcome to the podcast, Matsuko. Oh my god, thank you so much for having me. This is such a blessing and an honor, really. (laughs) Thank you for being here. I'm excited to chat with you more and learn a little bit more about you. We've already kind of talked a little bit, but I'm excited for all of our listeners to hear more about your your experience. Um, So to start off, I am curious about your childhood. I know you moved from Japan to the United States. Um, So I was wondering what that transition was like for you, especially in regards to your mental health. So when I immigrated from uh, Japan uh, to the United States, I, um, our plan, me and my mom was, because me and my mom immigrated here, my dad came here before us, um, our plan was, we thought it was vacation. So um, in Japan, my parents worked more than eight hour shifts, so it'd be 12 hours or even 16 hours. And so um, Japan is known as the country where the strongest live. And um, I guess... As a three-year-old, my mental health wasn't good at all because I was never there with my parents. My parents would drop me off at preschool um, asleep and they would pick me up at preschool asleep. So it was just, we weren't there as a family. And um, it took a toll on me when I immigrated here because I didn't know um, how to communicate with my other family members. And when that happened, it was more difficult to really communicate not only with my family members, but with, uh, you know, with my friends or with teachers as well. So it impacted me a lot. Yeah, that sounds really difficult. I can imagine that's such a culture, a culture shift, um, especially being like Latina and like coming from Japan. Like that's such an interesting combination that I'm sure like having those that dynamic was um, very interesting for you once you came to the United States. So can you tell me a bit about when your mental health, you first like recognized that maybe your mental health was um, maybe decreasing, I guess is the best way to put that, or just not doing as well as you wanted it to be? Uh, When I noticed that, I feel like at a young age, when I came here at three, at five, I I lost um, my grandfather from my dad's side. Um, I knew then, and I guess my mother, my mother, a mother's always going to be there for their child. Nevertheless, my mother knew so much that I actually knew I was hurting. She knew that I was going through a lot because I not only lost my grandfather, I lost my best friend. He was my best friend. So as a young child at five, you don't, you get so um, isolated from everybody when you lose someone and that takes a toll on me. And that always took a toll on me because I had always been afraid of being attached to others. And I've always been so cautious with relationships I create with others because I'm so afraid that I might lose them in one way or another. Uh, So it really did impact me to a point in which my mom, I even went as to, you know, harming myself at a young age and it, it took a toll on me, my mother, and my family, which is me, my mom, and my dad at the moment before my sister was born. So by then, um, when I was in school, I was very quiet, but I was also very troublesome, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a kid. Um, and that's where um, I, I was diagnosed with ADHD. So, yeah, so you were in school at that point. Um, how did you feel about that diagnosis? When I was diagnosed with ADHD at uh, second grade, um, I went to my psychiatrist and they said, oh yeah, your daughter has ADHD. I really, like I said, I was just playing with the toys in the corner mm-hmm. and I grew up practically in elementary school, just being pulled out of class, 
Um, I'd be pulled out of class and I would be in another class where they would teach me English um, because, like I said, I didn't know much English. And also they would teach me math and they would, you know, teach me like step by step. Um, and I would just think, you know, it was just a normal math class, but I would come back with cookies or toys or candy and so many other kids, you know, when you see a kid with candy, they're so envious, they want some. So once I actually trans transitioned to middle school, that is when everything kind of seeped into me. It was kind of more like, what is ADHD? I was curious and I felt like my curiosity kind of led for me to see um, what ADHD was. And I guess I myself labeled myself as dumb or as like an alien because I'm just like, I think differently than others. I'm not normal, but in reality, it, it's it's quite different from that. And uh, when, when someone that doesn't have ADHD, they are very organized. They go from one, two, three, four, five. But as a person with ADHD, they go five, seven, eight, two, one, you know? So it's it's not organized. It's very different. You know, when a person or a kid has ADHD, they learn different and they are taught differently from normal kids in a regular uh, classroom. So, yeah. Would you mind sharing what it was like growing up in a household um, that where you were first generation uh, Latina? So when I came here and immigrated, I did not know I would be first gen. I didn't like I it wasn't it didn't click to me. And as a first gen now and all the things I've been through and um, having friends that aren't even first gen and some being first gen, it's honestly, it's mentally draining sometimes because as a first gen, especially coming from a family of immigrants, especially coming from a family of Hispanics, it is and Latino households, and of course, like we're a mixed uh, family, it's very, very hard because we have a lot of, they have a lot of expectations. I came here and my family sacrificed everything back home. They, you know, sold everything. They sold all their money's worth. They sacrificed any, everything to come here just so that I, as a first gen and their kids, the first generation kid would at least be the beacon of hope of the American dream because that I guess that's I can at least speak for me and for those who relate that the American dream has always been something that Latinos want that Latinos have wanted to grasp for a long time and my father even told me that he himself would have wished that if he moved here sooner that he would have at least gotten like education he got in here instead of mm -hmm. what he was from. And I guess that goes from a lot of, um, especially in Hispanics and Latino countries, their education isn't quite as great as it is here. It's not, you don't have options. Sometimes, you know, my dad would tell me that in Peru to get to a university, you would have to do an exam and they would only have at least 20 spots if you wanted to become a doctor. And more than a hundred students would apply and take this exam. And so you, if you were one, that's great, but there is a lot of money involved. You know, there's not much resources for them. And that's the harsh part. And that's like the reality of being a first gen. We have so many like benefits of being first gen. I know me going to De Anza right now, I have the benefit of being first gen and not paying for anything, being debt free. That's awesome. But I can't say that for my sister because she obviously is a citizen. She um, is my little sister. She's my baby. She's like, I kind of raised her myself when my mom was working. So being a first gen is honestly taking my mental health in a lot of places. Cause I always thought that I wasn't good enough or I wasn't a good enough daughter. I wasn't a good enough um, student. Sometimes I would even feel I would have like, an imposter kind of like moment like am I even meant to be here you know like who am I and I can I at least say for some people that when you come from a very humble background you sometimes think that why am I here like do I deserve to be here it could go without saying some people might not think that but at least in my point of view when I first went to college I was just like oh my god like 
am I, do I deserve to be here? Like, but when I graduated my high school, I kind of felt the weight of being first. And I felt that I needed, I wasn't just carrying myself through the finish line. I was carrying my family. I was carrying our story. And for a lot of first gens, it can be like that. For a lot of first gens, it can be that, you know, some, some might not even know that they have benefits and some, I guess, first gen to me is like, you're upholding a lot of expectations. You're, even though you break down in so many, I mean, I break down almost sometimes, almost every, you can say every day because I wake up and it's hard. I'm like, oh, I'm the first daughter, especially being a, a woman, a Latina woman. Um, you get a lot of obstacles in your way. You know, um, it, there's a lot of things that kind of get in your way when you're a first gen. You have to kind of be perfect. You know, because if you're not perfect, then was your family sacrificed for nothing? So I always take account that if I'm meant to be here, I worked hard to be here. You know, me rompí el alma, me rompí el culo. I I'm here. You know, I I did it. And I guess as an advice I would give to first gens that are just noticing this or just noticing or opening their eyes. I would just say take all the help you could get because sometimes um, you don't see or some first gens don't even want help. You know, they think they can do it themselves. I was like that too. Like, I, I don't need help. Like, I can do it myself. But it really took a toll on me and it took a toll on me and my self-esteem and my confidence and me academically. And if you're not enough, then... Was it worth it? Was your family moving here and sacrificing everything, blood, sweat, and tears? Was it worth it just for you to fail? You know, it, it takes a toll on you and it takes a lot in you to think and it takes a lot of chains to break so that you can evolve. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I know it sounds like a ton of pressure, which I can't even imagine. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing that vulnerability. Um, and I'm just kind of curious, it sounds like your recommendation for other people who have been through this experience is to reach out for help or take help when it's offered. Um, how did you, I mean, like get to that mindset, I guess, like how did you kind of cope through those feelings that you were feeling um, and get to the point where you were okay with accepting help? I was actually, I didn't take help for a long time because being a first gen, I was like, I can do it myself. Mm-hmm. I got this. Like, I, I'm better than y'all. You know, stuff like I would think that I was the bomb, but I failed. I failed. And I remember one time crying in my room so badly that I failed and I wasn't doing so good at school. I wasn't doing so good mentally. My family was kind of, we were going through a lot. And I remember my mom coming to my room and she's like, and it was the first time um, that she saw me at that state that I was, I couldn't breathe at that point. I was very hyperventilating. I was very vulnerable. I was very fragile. And my mom was telling me, why are you crying? You know, why now? Why have you, why have you, carried this pain for so long why didn't you ask for help and I told her that you know I thought I could do it myself I thought that I could have managed so many things at once by myself because I thought that I was that powerful I thought that I I could just manage to do all that without messing up you know and my mom told me Nena, like that's that's not how life works. You know, that's not how life works. That's do you really think that you know that that's how it works? Like that's not how it works. And I told her, what what do I do? You know, I messed up on this. I told her, like, I don't know what to do. And that was the first time I was so vulnerable and so um 
fragile in that state. I was like, you were walking on eggshells. And my mom told me, what you need to do is to write down everything that is going wrong right now and solve it one by one because you are breaking down. I don't want to see my daughter breaking down. I want you to get help if it's if you're failing at math or if you're failing in any course at school, go get a tutor. First, do that. Second, our family, you know, it may not be okay right now, but we'll get better. So you need to keep your head up high. You need to do these things. Osa, we were she was practically telling me what to do and the steps to do it. At first, I looked at her like, "What? Like, what am I? What is this?" And I remember one of my cousin, uh, my family, I would say, because she's my, she's my family. She's also my tutor. Uh, Fatima coming in. She sat down with me. And she was like, why are you messing up? What's wrong? And I was crying in front of her. And I said, I messed this up. I'm failing this class, all of this. And she's like, if you want a scholarship that badly, I need you to get concentrate and stop, you know, going and trying to manage. You don't have, you're not an optimist. You don't have these many arms. You can't do all these things. And she was right. She was right. And and that point forward, I, I realized that I couldn't do all these things. I, I knew that as a human being and as a first gen, I was easily breakable, you know, and yeah, I mean, I was molded since a child to be perfect, to think that if I messed up on one course, it would be the end of the world. It'd be doomsday, you know? And I guess the whole molding was wrong because if you mold clay or into, uh, into a statue, you're going to have at least some, you know, mistakes on it. But at the end of the day, it's art. And I also like to kind of uh, compare that to me because I'm just like, you know, I was molded like this, but I wasn't molded perfectly. You know, my parents didn't mold me perfectly, but I at least I'm human. At least, you know, I can manage at least one thing at a time and think that, yes, I'm, I'm enough, you know. And in that moment, when I asked for help, Things started clearing up for me. You know, as a first gen, I just wanted everything to be okay so that when everything was okay and I was stable and I am stable in my life, that my sister wouldn't have to suffer the same thing I had to suffer. And I think that might go for some, you know, first gens that have siblings, you know, because I always take that in account that if I'm stable enough right now and my sister sees that I'm stable right now, she doesn't have to go through or see the worst things that I've gone through because I'm always going to protect her. I'm always going to tell her right from wrong, but I'm always have to remind myself that I'm human and that I make mistakes, you know, and those mistakes don't really define who I am. Don't really define me as a first gen because I made it this far. You know, I know I can make it even farther and beyond. And I think that's when I started asking help and, it cleared up a lot of things for me because we have these expectations as first gens to do above and beyond so that all the sacrifices our parents did and our ancestors did, it was for something, you know? And I guess that's what a lot of people say, like, oh, it's, you have a lot of pressure on this, you don't have to do all of this. But if we want to, then we want to, you know? But at the end of the day, we are human. And I think we deserve to have a break and tell ourselves that we are enough because it does ruin a lot of people mentally with that amount of pressure. And I won't lie, it also makes someone's self-esteem go way down, you know? And because if you don't, if you don't comply or you don't kind of check off those expectations, you're considered, I guess, in my family, the black sheep, you know? And that's like in the Estrada family, but that's not in my mom's family. So, <laughs> I mean, it's very different. Everyone is so different. But with me, I always told myself that if I did it 
for if I made it this far, and yeah, I may have made a crap lot of mistakes, then you know, I can at least my sister can see that as a first gen and the first one in the family to go to college because, like I said, our parents that immigrated here didn't have that option. They didn't have that benefit and that privilege. And I say privilege with like, I guess sadness because I've seen and through TV and I've heard so many stories from my cousins and my aunts and they have experienced firsthand what it's like their education over there back home. It's not like ours. It's very, it's very poor. It's not in, it's not enriching like it is here in America. And I always tell myself that I'm privileged, but that I've seen a lot of horrors because we came here with nothing. But I always tell my sister that, hey, you know, you came here privileged. You are a U.S. citizen. You have not at least gone through and ex- are experiencing the pressure right now. And I want you to know that if you see me making mistakes, just know I'm not perfect, you know, as a first gen. And I want a lot of first gens to know that. You know, if you have a sibling or not, and your parents see that you make mistakes, you're not perfect. You're not molded to be perfect. And it can be like that for most first gens. I feel like there's probably a mentality, like there's a, like a hustle mentality with first gens where you, yeah, you feel like you have to make your family proud. You have to keep going no matter what, always have to be like, yeah, like you said, like a shining star, like top of the class and yeah we're we're all human and you're allowed to make mistakes and you know live your life and you can rely on your community to support you um I think that's yeah like you were kind of saying you feel like you are on your own sometimes so much that uh, you kind of forget that you can rely on the people around you um when you're struggling so yeah thank you for sharing that important message yeah I kind of wanted to talk a bit about experience that you had when you were 13 um you mentioned to me that you were sexually assaulted by a family member so um i'm hoping we could just talk a bit about the like aftermath of that how you were affected and how it kind of impacted your mental health yeah so when i was 13 i was sexually assaulted by a family member yes that's true what happened to me and how it impacted me it still impacts me to this day because it impacts me in my mind and it also impacts me physically. When I say physically, I mean that I view myself so differently now in my physical body. I don't view myself like I was when I was 13. Because when you're 13 and you experience something like that, I feel like my 13-year-old self was just disgusted of her own body. And up to now, even sometimes, you know, I go into my closet, I'm for example, I'm going out with my boyfriend and I I want to I want to just dress up and sometimes I just caution myself like okay, I know I can't wear a crop top. What if people look at my breast or what if people think that it's okay to do this? Or I can't wear too a short that is so short because then people are going to be looking at my butt or all of these things um because you're so afraid. And um I just at that moment when that happened, I was completely numb. I did not feel anything. I was just in shock. I was paralyzed in fear. And I was just so angry. I was angry at myself because through those years, I had viewed myself as a disgusting person, you know, that what if this person who is older, okay, um, what if men that are older see me that way and think that it's okay to violate me that way? If he did it, then do other men view me that like that? So a 13-year-old should never think about that, should never like go through that because it's it's it messes with you. And I feel like I've I've gone through a lot. And I even tell myself, not all men are the same, you know, and as well as men go through sexual trauma as well, you know. Um, not us women get us assaulted, but men do too. And I feel like that should also be um, me being here right now. I also want to clearly say that men also get assaulted too. Men also go through these things too. They may not show it because of um, how 
sometimes men are not supposed to cry. Men are these, you know, these kind of stigmas that are sticked onto men. But at the same time, you know, you also think when you go through something like that, you will never be the same. And I am not the same because um, I was just so scared to even be intimate with anyone. I was so scared. Um, I didn't let anyone touch me um, after that. I didn't let anyone touch me for six months after that. Um, and I sometimes think that in my darkest moments that I don't deserve to be happy, that I don't deserve to be loved because of what happened. So when someone goes through something like that, you know, you need help. You know, you it, it causes a lot of like a lot of problems. You know, I it impacted my mental health specifically. Um, I got, uh, you know, really bad depression. I had been diagnosed with PTSD. I was already diagnosed uh, way before that uh, with anxiety, but my anxiety was through the roof. It was so bad. And I kind of call my anxiety and my depression a killer duo. The reason why I call it a killer duo is because anxiety for me, it's like I overthink a lot. I overanalyze the situation. I think the worst is going to come because that is anxiety. You know, you think the worst is going to come. You think you're going to do so bad and all of these things. And my depression is just my negative thoughts, the thoughts that I that I hate myself, that I shouldn't be here right now, that I should disappear, all of these thoughts. So I call them the killer duo. And going through something so specific like this, it it really makes you think about the relationships you have with other people and how you're you're cautious now and how you you know people around you um my family um my family which consists of my mom my dad and my sister they were just and they can even tell you they were walking on eggshells whenever they wanted to talk to me after after that experience they were like walking on eggshells they they didn't know if what they said was going to hurt me or if what they said was just going to make me angry, but I, I would be crying all day. I would be in my bed all day, you know, and, and it affected me. I mean, of course it did, but I feel like my family, they didn't know what to do. They supported me, but they didn't know what to do. I just want to thank you for sharing. Um, I know this is probably, it's, it's, I'm not going to say fresh, but it's, I mean, five years ago is not that long ago to experience this. And especially at the age of 13, you, you want to believe that you can trust like the older people or the adults in your life. But when something like this happens, I can't imagine the thought process of trying to even like grapple with um, what you went through. So I just want to, yeah, thank you for sharing. But yeah, I'm curious how, how did your family support you? Um, And kind of, yeah, what was the, the aftermath of once you told them what happened? So when I told my parents what happened, I told my mom and I told my dad. Now, my family, like I said, again, my family consists of my mom, my dad, and my sister. My mom was there 24-7. She would check up on me. After what I told her, she believed me. She, um, she was there. But this family member was my dad, was in the dad's side of the family. So my dad was just, my dad was angry, but my dad was angry, not only at that person, but angry at his family. Because even though my mom was, my mom checking up on me 24 seven would try to motivate me to get out of bed, would walk with me when I needed it. Sometimes when I didn't want to go to school, because there are times in which I couldn't handle being at school she would pick me up and she said, okay, let's go. We're going to go get some ice cream or we're going to go get, um, we're going to go shopping. You know, we're going to get your things off your mind. Okay. And, um, she, she was just there, you know, she, she's an angel. She, she helped me. So my dad, my dad was there. He was just, he didn't know what side to take. And I try to look at it at two sides, but at the same time, I'm his daughter. I went through that. The pain was imaginable. Like it was just so much pain. But the pain I felt after was when I, they were targeting the victim. They were saying how I asked for it. Like what did I expect? That this was my dad's side of the family. 
um, these these people are the Estradas. This is my dad's side of the family. And so they were saying how I asked for it, that, you know, what did you wear? It doesn't matter what I wore. It doesn't matter what anyone wears. The, the thing is, is that no one should touch anyone, no matter what they wear, without consent. And they were just you know, tarring the victim, you know, insulting the victim. They were saying how much of a slut I was with so many things. And that, of course, affected me and how I viewed my dad. Because my dad was just so conflicted. And I could understand my dad because who wants family, your family, to insult your own daughter? How would you feel? But I was angry. I was angry at my dad. I was angry at him. I was angry at his family. And I still am sometimes. But now I'm 18. I cut them off from my life. You know, the only family I consider my family is my mom, my dad, and my sister. But my outer family is my mom's side of the family. But what my dad did to support me was just block all of that. And when I mean block all of that, I mean that he cut off all communications with the person that did that to me and that side of the family. And he just focused on me. He just said, hey, kid, I'm I'm done with this family. I can't believe they would do that. I'm so sorry. I had to learn how to forgive my dad. And I it it took me five years to forgive my dad, five full years. And it hurts because you, you know, my dad. My dad's my hero. My dad is um the person I look up to, you know, a dad is. It's supposed to be your first love because he's always there. He's your parental figure. He's your superhero. So to for five years being angry at him, it blew off a lot of steam. You know, it it, it made me feel like I I envied so many of my friends' fathers and their relationships with their dads because I couldn't have a relationship like that with my dad without lashing on him. And that's where I take accountability to because I feel like five years for that, just so that my dad, you know, apologize. He he would apologize so many times. But my mom supporting me, my dad now supporting me, who he always said that he's always supported me. That has always been my support. Family has always been my support. That sounds incredibly difficult. Um it's nice that you had, like, like you said, like your mom, your sister, but yeah, having, having the anger towards your dad is, I think, completely valid. Um, and I, I'm glad that you guys are on a, a good page today, but I'm not, I appreciate you kind of giving us the raw insight into what that aftermath looks like. How did you take care of your mental health during this time? Oh, my mental health, honestly, to be completely raw with you, my mental health was, it was, it was not it. I, like I said, I would never get out of bed. And people are going to think I'm gross. For this. I wouldn't even shower for two days. It was just so bad because I, like I said, I would isolate myself. I would be in my bed. Um, in the morning, the curtains would be closed. Until the afternoon. So I, I would not see the light of day at all. My mom would be like, you're a vampire. You think this is twilight. Come on, get up. But, you know, when you go through something like that, you don't even want to. Like You have no motivation to just keep on going. So what really tried to get me at least to get up in the morning was to pamper myself, to start to pamper myself. That my mom would wake me up. I'd get up, and we would, and she would tell me, "Okay, you know what? I'm sick of you being in bed. I don't like this. I don't like to see my child suffer. Why don't we go on walks?" And I said, "Why? Why would I go on a walk?" She's like, first of all, you're cooped up in here. Levántate and let's go." So I would get up. I'd be like, "Okay." I put my shorts on. We start heading out the door. And that's, I guess, where I blew off everything 
and I blew off the hate in my heart because the more like the affected thing in my body through this whole experience with my sexual trauma had been my heart because my heart hurt. It hurt a lot. And me and my mom, we went to um, this track over here near my near my house. And she was like, okay, I expected me to walk. She's like, go run. She's like, what? Why am I going to run? Let's go run. Okay. I start running. I feel my heart, you know, beating and, and a lot of adrenaline going through me. I'm sweating, you know, things that you do when you run. It felt great. It felt great. I, I felt like in a moment there, I, I let everything go for a moment. It's like I, I went in another dimension. It's like, oh my God, um, my problems are gone in a way, but you can't run away from your problems forever. You know? And I would also use dancing because I do this traditional dance. I would also use dance, which I'm very passionate about. Um, and I, I just be in my own world. And yeah, I mean, it, it would help me to calm myself and, and not think that, oh my God, this whole time, like I said, five years I had been fighting that and telling myself it's my fault. He did that because it's my fault. It's my fault, you know? And these trusted adults in my high school telling me over and over again that it was not my fault. And five years battling myself because at the end of the day, you know, my boyfriend now, currently, he he always tells me, babe, you're always, you know, your worst enemy is always going to be yourself. And so I always, I always tell myself it's not my fault. And so I feel like what really helped me was running and what really helped me kind of just at least be calmer about the situation and try to process it was dance and running or doing anything I can to physically move. And whether it be my mom dragging my butt out of bed, you know, I, I did it. I think that's awesome that your mom, I mean, you probably hated it at first, like her pushing you <laughs> out the door. <laughs> but yeah. it sounds like that's, I mean, she knew what you needed, which is awesome. And I'm glad that you, you went through with it and <laughs> just reconnected with, yeah, with your body through running and dancing. Awesome. And then I also wanted to ask, because I know that um, you've been through some treatment programs. So would you mind sharing a bit about some of the coping tools that you've learned through your treatment programs that you continue to use in your recovery? Ever since when I got in my senior year, so my senior year, I had um, finally asked for help. I went to my uh, psychiatrist, obviously went online because I can't go in person. And she told me, you know what, I'm going to sign you up for IOP. I'm thinking, oh my God, they're going to send me to a mental facility again. Because like I said, I went to a mental facility, not a good experience at all. And I was just like, oh, hell no, I'm not doing this. I can't. Oh my God. And I remember just my first day in IOP and IOP in that moment, that program was for people um, going through addictions or going through self-destructed, uh, self-destructive things, you know, self-harm or depression. So I was in that um, program for my self-harm and for my depression and what I can do and what kind of um, tools I can use to help stabilize that, you know, and not go back and relapse and I remember calling my boyfriend I said babe I can't do this like what if they make fun of me what if people are judging me all of this and I will it's non-stop I told him I was ranting I was just complaining but at this end of the day I sat down and I remember crying my first session in crying I, I didn't even know I would cry because this girl you know we were talking about how everybody's day was and what they felt and you know, what they've been through. This girl perfectly described how I felt. Whether it be a different situation or not, she perfectly described what I felt. And I remember just crying and just saying, oh my God, I I can't believe I'm here. I, I can't, I can't believe she just perfectly described it. 
that's where I kind of formed a bond with everybody. And I said, you know what? We're all here to heal. We're all here to help each other. And one of the treatments that I also underwent through was um, DOP, which was for anxiety and overthinking. So they would help you with skills and they would tell you that you don't have to overthink anymore. Um, I still take DOP. I also, when I took IOP, I learned some coping mechanisms and they taught us about um, five, four, three, two, ones, which was what are five things you see, four things you hear, three things you smell, two things you can touch and one thing you want to do for the weekend or whatever it is. And that helped me whenever I was just having a panic attack or when I was crying hysterically. And I've always, um, you know, gave that coping mechanism and shared it with my friends because sometimes they would be like in panic. I'm just like, just do this five things you can see four things, you know, and it helped them. So I feel like that's something I want to give out to the world and be like, hey, this is a coping mechanism. You guys can try. It's the best. I'm saying it's the best. And it really helps. Um, I also went under the treatment of, you know, seeing my therapist at school and as well as um, being prescribed antidepressants. Of course, that was just like, oh, God, like I need one more pill instead of me taking my ADHD pill. You know, and so at first I was very like, oh, what, what am I going to do? Like, oh, oh, no, like another pill. But I learned that you know, when you ask for help, you really get the best out of both worlds. You learn a lot about yourself and you also learn um, that it's not just you going through these things. You, know, you learn who are your support systems, really, and who stay with you for for that amount of time and who will always stay with you. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing both the coping tools and the fact that you're um, on medication and kind of, you know, like the balance of all those things contributing to your recovery. I'd love to chat a bit about kind of where you are now in life. Um, I know a big part of your experience is building resiliency. Um, so one of the things I want to know is what has been the biggest takeaway that you've gained from going through this traumatic experience? The biggest takeaway I can really give to anyone or really myself and the biggest takeaway, I felt myself and I, and I told myself so many times whenever I had gone through those, through that five years of hell, really, I, I had always told myself that I I didn't deserve to be loved, that I don't deserve to be happy, that all of this is because I deserved it or I did something wrong to please someone and the universe is getting back at me, you know? And when I met my boyfriend, I I felt like all of that changed because not only did he make me change my view in my in my own life, but he told me, you know, I, I want you to get help. And that's where resiliency comes in. I feel like um, resiliency comes in so many different forms. And my my sort of resiliency is that I, at first, I felt ashamed to ask for help. I often tell myself, like, I should have asked for help my sophomore year or my junior year. Um, then I wouldn't have gone through all of this, you know. But no matter how many ifs I say, you know, it's already passed. But I also tell myself that I did it because I told my therapist, I told my psychologist, I need help. And I feel like my biggest takeaway of even being resilient in this whole thing was just not being ashamed of asking for help because it's such a it's it's such a thing that um, sometimes Latin lioness households hold shame after that you ask for help whether it be from like for mental health services or even health services too when i asked for help when people go through something traumatic um sometimes people can get back get get up themselves you know they could get back up without anyone's help but so many people us humans are very different and some people might need two or three people to help them back up um, help them get back up or might need four or five to 
get up again. When you get back up, not only did you get back up by those people that helped you, but that strength later on helps you move on because that strength that they put in you is the enough motivation to help you and move on at least or be at peace. And I feel like the people around me that helped me, I got back up not only by myself and my own will, but because of the resilience and the strength I got from them, I decided I can't suffer like this anymore. I'm going to ask for help. And I feel like the strength, it's its so important to also you know, know that there are people around you that are willing to help, but it's up to you whether you want it or not. So that's my biggest takeaway. That's awesome. I think you said that beautifully. How can others learn to be as resilient as you? Resiliency, like I said, comes in so many forms. And I feel like resiliency, my my type of resiliency I can give to others is to always have a support system, you know, to always not be ashamed of asking for help, to not be ashamed of, you know, how others might even view you if you ask for help, you know, because uh, I know sometimes you might think, oh, my, if I ask for help, people are going to think that I'm like, I'm crazy or I'm all this. It's not that. You know, it will never be that because if those people really think that, then okay, those people aren't people that you should be hanging out with or you shouldn't even care about what other people think. I feel like resiliency, when it came with, to me about resiliency, it came with a lot of reflection. It came with me knowing that I was my worst enemy, you know, that I put myself down a lot because sometimes even my mom would say, you know, you put yourself down before you even want to try. You know, so my form of resiliency was being confident again, not prideful, confident, you know, that you can do it. It's not that, you know, oh, yeah, I already know how to do that. No. I can do it. It's not being prideful at all because pride is so different from confidence. And, you know, having that confidence really is what really kind of connects with resiliency and makes you think, you know, I can do it. I can get back up. I can live a normal life despite what this happened. I, I can make myself feel better because, you know, whatever this person did to hurt me, I can do so much better in my life. I will not let this ruin me. You know, I can continue on and move on and find peace. So my form of resiliency can be like that for, um, you know, how others might even want to learn from that, whether they want to take it or not. You know? Yeah, I think it's it's all about, like you said, confidence um, is such a key part of it, but also like being kind to yourself. Um, I think, I don't know, a lot of us probably have a, I think I have an inner voice that's always like, a little, I would even say like toxic and damaging yeah. to like my ego, my confidence. So I think it's about just reminding yourself, like you are worthy, you matter. And just like saying kind things to yourself and making that like a regular practice mm-hmm. um, can definitely add to your resiliency too. Um, so I kind of want to, you know, shift to like the positive side of things, what you're up to now. Um, I know you just graduated from gun high school um, and what you hope to do in the future. Yeah, so I just graduated. <laughs> I am going to start college. I'm going to start college in De Anza, uh in September. And I also, my in the future, I want to become a TEFL teacher, which is a teaching English as a foreign language. And I want to teach English as a foreign language in Japan. And I may want to live there. You know, I want to live back home in my, in my home country. And I mean, that's what I'm up to. I'm also up to making art. Um, I love, you know, drawing uh, anime characters and I love doing glass painting as well. So I'm mostly coming up with a little business for that. Awesome. Cool. That's amazing that you want to teach English in in Japan. Go back to, you know, where you were born um, and connect with that culture again, which is really Mm -hmm. amazing. 
I like to end every podcast this season by asking our guests, um, since you've started your mental health journey, what's one thing you incorporate in your life that you think others should too? Wow. Okay. Um, one thing I feel like others should incorporate is something that they love to do, that they're so passionate about their favorite hobby or whatever it is they like to do. You know, uh, my, my thing that I'm so passionate about, I, I love to dance and I love to do art and I like to paint. And I guess those things is what really releases your mind, whether it be stress, you know, sadness, anger, do whatever it makes you feel happy to, you know, whether it be art, cardio, you know, cooking, writing or journaling, those things, I I feel like people should incorporate that in their daily lives as well as affirmations. Um, Affirmations has always been in my life and has always uh, motivated me and made me feel like I can do anything. So affirmations are, for example, um, I am enough or I am loved. I am happy and I should feel happy like those types of affirmations um affirmations are used as uh, motivation uh to gain confidence um to not think negatively etc um and I feel like people should really use that in their daily lives because it, it can change so much of how you do how you uh feel really every day and it could be a, a kind of like a daily routine yeah I love that so Hobbies and affirmations. I think those are, that's great advice. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, Matsuko. I really enjoy talking to you and I just really appreciate you sharing your experience. Um, I think it's great that we're talking about it and just, you know, normalizing the conversation around these, you know, traumatic incidents, because the more we talk about it, the more likely people are to receive the help that they need. So um, where can people go to learn more about you and your arts and all the things that you're doing? So people can learn more about me in my Instagram, which is uh, Matsuko uh, with an underscore Nakamatsu, N-A-K-A-M-A-T-S-U. And if they really want to learn about uh, my IOP group or DOP, uh, reach out to Kaiser Permanente and your, you know, your local psychiatrist or therapist. And it really helps a lot. I really encourage anyone that, you know, really wants to uh, heal and go on this mental journey with others and really, you know, want to uh, uplift themselves to really reach out and get some help. Whether, you know, you think you might be ashamed of it or not, it really will change your life. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Um, I hope that you stay in touch and I look forward to all the wonderful arts and the things you do in the future. Um, I know you're going to do some great things. So thank you again and we will talk soon. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning into the To Be Honest podcast brought to you by Momentum for Health. We're so happy to be able to share the personal behavioral health and wellness stories of youth and young adults in Santa Clara County. If you live in Santa Clara County and are in need of behavioral health assistance, please call 800-704-0900. You can also reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline 24-7 by dialing or texting 988. That's it for now, but we'll be back in just two weeks with another episode. Bye!